afternoon. It's good to be with you. I bring you greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from Charleston, the holy city, as we call ourselves down there, where I have been for the last six years, uh, blessed to serve alongside the people at St. Andrew's Parish United Methodist Church um, out in West Ashley. Um, I was talking with Will before that I think it was two years ago that my wife Megan was here with you. Um, I hope that it's been long enough that you will not compare the two of us, um, because truly I will not be able to live up. But it is good to be with you today. Um, One of the traditions of the church during our Lenten season is to look at the final words that Christ spoke from the cross. This is important for a couple of different reasons. One, because it would have pained Jesus a great amount to muster up that energy in order to speak them at all. After having suffered abuse, as well as now hanging there, it would have taken a lot of his energy, what little energy he had left, to say these vital words. They're important because the Gospel writers wanted to include them. They felt like they were important. And they're important because they reveal God's character to us. So I want to share some of those with you today. We're in Luke's Gospel, the 23rd chapter, and I want to read the 26th verse and then skip over to the 32nd through the 38th verse. And this is the word that we find. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Picking up on verse 32, to others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. So traditionally, these are the first of the final words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. To be spoken by Christ. Interesting enough, if you were to open up your Bible and find these words for yourself, you'll see that in most translations, these words appear in parentheses. And you'll see a note that says these were not included in the original text um, that potentially Luke wrote. And so the question is, is how did they get there? And does, well, frankly, does it matter? Again, the tradition has lifted these up saying these are the first, which oftentimes the first was the most important. But there's an interesting theory that goes with how these words found their way into Luke's gospel at all. And it goes like this. So I read you the part about Simon having to carry the cross. Well, Mark's gospel reports to us that Simon had two sons, one of whose name was Rufus. Raise your hand if you knew that Rufus was in the Bible. One of his sons was named Rufus. 
And it's believed that Rufus would have lived with Simon for a period of time, but that at some point in time, like a good son, he would have gone off on his own and possibly would have wound himself all the way up to Rome. Years later, Paul would write a letter to the church there in Rome, and part of his greeting in Romans 16 says, Bring greetings to our friend Rufus. The theory is that this is the same man who was the son of Simon, who would have been very intimate with Jesus in those final moments and would have heard those words uttered from the cross. At some point, Simon would have shared this story with Rufus, telling him about who this man Jesus was. And eventually, Luke would have possibly made his way in order to be able to greet Rufus himself, thus having to edit his own gospel. Because they were that important for him. They were important because, well, because Luke knew a thing or two about the thing that plagues all of us, that we don't like to talk about, sin. You may know this already, but the Old Testament talks about sin, and it uses the concept of straying from the path, but the New Testament talks more about missing a mark. So if you would imagine playing darts, and you're trying to throw a dart at a particular spot, and you miss, that would be what sin was represented in the Greek from the New Testament. But what this means is there's a certain way we are to live our lives. There's an expectation that we have. And that when we don't, a gap forms between us and others and us and God. And so because of this, we need forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because God is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, as the psalmist reminds us. And it's as if God is saying, here, let me lift that burden from you. Now, before Jesus came, there was a different way that we dealt with sin, and and they had an atonement system that was based on sacrifice. I'd be willing to bet that you probably haven't spent a lot of time in Leviticus 5. I know that I haven't. I had to look back at it thinking about this sermon. But Leviticus 5 lays out all of the different sacrifices that needed to be done in order to, to make amends with God because of our sin. They wanted a physical, concrete response to the brokenness in our lives so that healing could occur. In essence, it was putting us back in right relationship with God. But there was even something more to this. And when it came to the sin of the entire community, there was a a different way that they went about dealing with this sin. And it's found in Leviticus 16. And I just wanted to share a little bit with you about this from the text itself. So Aaron was tasked, Moses tasked Aaron through God's direction to get two goats. And one of the goats was to be sacrificed there for the people's sins. A physical, concrete expression of their seeking forgiveness from God. But the second goat was a little bit more interesting. And this is what verse 20 tells us. It says, when he was finished atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, altar, he shall present the live goat. 
Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear an on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. This, friends, is where we get the term scapegoat. What was designated at one point in time in the life of the Hebrew people as something as sacred and holy to, to walk to, towards God in a new way, seeking forgiveness of sin, has become corrupt. By our human brokenness. Because when you think of the term scapegoat, I can't imagine it's very positive, right? What started out as an act to make amends, to right wrongs, to seek forgiveness, became more about violence and getting even. And if we're honest, it's not too far of a jump to see where they were to where we are now today. Instead of it being an actual goat, we target people, whole groups of people, sometimes individuals. The actual people become the target of our sin and blame as we attempt to restore order. Friends, Jesus came to change all that. Jesus became the scapegoat to reveal that universal lie that of scapegoating to begin with. Note that John the Baptist would have said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Singular there, not sins, but the sin, all of it. And it seems that the sin of the world that we see oftentimes is one of hatred and fear and violence. And the innocent one, looking out upon those who had now put him on a cross, offers a first word of forgiveness for it all. A crowd that by all accounts, except for maybe a couple, deserved nothing at all from Jesus. And yet there was mercy. There was grace. There was forgiveness. You set that up. Is that my... I'm done? Like, that's it? Okay. But this isn't new for Jesus, is it? Because Jesus' entire life was based upon forgiveness. Even in the womb, He would be named Jesus, one who would save His people from their sins. He came preaching repentance early on in His ministry. Ministered to those who were outsiders, sinners, outcasts, tax collectors, people like Zacchaeus. And he taught them how to pray. He taught the disciples how to pray the same prayer that we uttered a few moments ago, asking for forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he told beautiful parables like the prodigal son of a, a son who didn't deserve any forgiveness at all, and yet a father who waited there with open arms to receive his boy back. 
And then even at the Last Supper, as He lifts that cup, knowing the last meal He's going to receive, what does He say? This is the cup of forgiveness of your sins. See, friends, what Lent offers us is a 40-day journey of examining our hearts, our minds, our lives to see why we need what Jesus prayed for. To see what Jesus offered the people that day through His suffering and ultimately in His death and in His resurrection. It's important that we receive this, that we accept this, but that we also begin to trust this forgiveness. And allow it to wash over us in a new way. Providing us an opportunity to live differently to later today than we did before this moment. And this is a process we undergo throughout our Lenten journey. And one could probably argue throughout our entire lives. As we acknowledge the mercy God gave to us and then extend that same forgiveness mercy, and grace upon others. An Orthodox priest named Father Thomas Hopko puts it this way. He says, when you are sinned against, the devil rejoices. When you react with vengeance or without forgiveness, the devil rejoices two times. Never give the second joy. So forgiveness is not just about healing the other. It is the healing of yourself too. If you don't forgive, you allow yourself to be poisoned. I've heard it put this way. It's as if you, when you withhold forgiveness, it's as if you drink the poison and you expect the other person to fall down dead. You know that's not the way it works, right? I'll put one final way from the poet Najwa Zebian. Never wish them pain. That's not who you are. If they cause you pain... They must have pain inside. Instead, wish them healing. Friends, may that be our prayer this day and every day. As we venture through this season of 40 days of looking inside ourselves and holding our lives up to the light of Christ, realizing how much we need God's forgiveness and how much The world around us, around us needs to feel that same forgiveness extending to it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.